Welcome back to the All Things Physical Therapy Podcast, Season 2, baby. This is your host, DBT Steph, and I'm so excited to continue sharing and uncovering the many layers of the physical therapy profession so that you can be the best clinician you want to be. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of season two of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. This is your host, DPT Steph. On today's episode, we have Dr. Physical Therapy Ben Weinstein, who's kind of going to talk about his transition from being a staff PT to now a clinic owner. Ben, why don't you give us a little introduction and tell us about yourself? Hey guys, Dr. Ben here. I am the owner and operator of Enhanced PT and Performance uh, here in Nashville, Tennessee. That is a new kind of startup for me, so I'm real excited to come on the podcast with Stephanie. I grew up in the New York City area as well, kind of right outside, about 25 minutes in New Jersey. I went to University of Delaware undergrad and then New York Medical for my doctorate program. After that, I moved down to Nashville just to try something new and end up working at Vanderbilt as an inpatient spine therapist for about a year and then transitioned to the outpatient ortho realm as a director for a couple of years. Then I did some travel physical therapy, and now I'm running my own uh, show. So it's been a whirlwind, and I've been out for about five years now. So I'm kind of ready to take on the, the PT world and uh, see if we can't make it a little bit better one day at a time. Yeah, I love that you have kind of a little bit of everything for as far as experience, like going from obviously staff PT, clinic director, a little bit of travel and like now your own business. So kind of talk us through from beginning to where you are now. I know you just gave like a little background, but what about like more mindset? Did you know you always wanted to be clinic director? Did you always want to have your own business or like what were your goals kind of from early on? Yeah, so early on, I kind of knew my dad's a physician and he had his own practice. So I, I kind of had that in the back of my head that, you know, that was going to be the direction I wanted to go. Obviously, you know, everybody deals with a little bit of doubt and like, you know, it'd just be so much easier to run it for somebody else. I, when I got down to Nashville, it was more of a, oh, let's meet people, you know, it was a new area. So that was where the inpatient realm really shined. It was a much better work-life balance than as we kind of know the outpatient setting can be. But I always did want to get back to that, work with a little bit higher level athletes. And so transitioning into outpatient was always the plan. And then as things kind of went along and COVID hit, that was where I thought about starting my own practice, but COVID kind of made me take the safe pathway and and stay under somebody else who was you know taking the brunt of that battle that we all went through and then recently here it just really kind of came to a head where I felt like I wasn't able to treat the way that I wanted to treat and I wasn't getting patients better the way I wanted to get them better so as we've seen reimbursement kind of take a tumble here the amount of patients you have to see goes up. And and that just was never going to be me. I was never going to be someone who saw, you know, 16 to 20 people a day consistently. You know, that leads to that that burnout that you hear so much of in the outpatient lifestyle and, you know, inpatient as well as they just kind of keep bumping up these productivity numbers. I was kind of in the debate of, you know, transitioning out of physical therapy altogether into 
you know, a medical sales option or opening up my own practice and just kind of, you know, making PT what I wanted to make it. And that that's kind of where I ended up about six months ago. So that was, I guess, the whole mindset. I know a little uh, long-winded, but it was really just my feeling of discontent with how I was not necessarily being treated as a staff PT or a director, but just how I was able to treat. And it was very insurance directed, not PT directed. Right. And that's huge because, you know, we learn all these skills and obviously we have the ability to not only be independent practitioners, but also the skills to, you know, like rule out red flags. I know some states are even in the military, you can do imaging now, like so we're starting to get more autonomy and we don't want to lose that autonomy despite the battle that we have with insurance companies. So I think that's that's a huge thing to recognize. When you made your transition from, I say staff PT, because that's just like what I'm used to calling in the hospital, but just, you know, basic entry level PT, making the transition from that to clinic director, what kind of skills do you feel like you needed to kind of have to make the transition and then kind of get comfortable in the role? Yeah, I think, you know, the skills that you need to make the transition to clinic director aren't very clinical at all. I mean, it it's really, you know, can you manage a team? Can you deal with all the things that come up with pay? Can you be someone that people want to work for? That was more the difficult part than the actual clinical knowledge. The clinical knowledge was important in the sense that you want to be able to feel like you could support the people around you when they have questions and things like that. But it really was, you know, those things that you don't learn in PT school, unfortunately, and, you know, how to go talk to a team member when things aren't going well, how to support someone if they're going through something tough at home and they're bringing it to work with them. You know, those conversations are much more difficult than teaching somebody how to do the correct mobilization or give them the correct exercise. So I think being a leader, whether that's as a clinic director or clinical educator in some capacity, or even, you know, going back to teach is a great skill that all PTs should try to gain because I think it makes it better with our patients. You know, we're always having those difficult conversations, whether it's telling somebody they may not ever get full range of motion back, or, you know, they're going to have to work through a different movement pattern, but it's also difficult to have those conversations with our employees and usually your friends by the time that you're, you're done working somewhere. As you got more comfortable in the role, how much would you say is still clinical based versus more like an administrative or business related? So it really was, I'd say like a hundred percent clinical because you were still expected to see a full caseload. And there was just another 10% on top of that, that you didn't really expect, you know, where your, your lunch is now a lunch with a doctor to have that conversation. It's doing a review on an employee. And that's where I really felt like it kind of started to drain me. There was no real off time. Um, I was just working more than the 40 hours that, that you'd expect to work as a staff PT. So it was tough. I think, you know, the next step for me would have been kind of bumping up into an area director. And that would have been probably 75% administrative and 25% clinical where you're not treating every day. But as a clinic director, uh, you know, I was still treating a full at sometimes 70 patient a week caseload. Yeah, as, as well as, you know, making sure that everyone's time card was 
step then doing hiring and going through interviews and, and all that. So it really, I'd say, was as much clinical as you'd get with just the add-on of uh, more responsibility. Right. And I think a lot of people don't recognize that initially, like as a new grad. I have a friend who's in a similar position right now and is, you know, was given the title of clinic director, but like you said, still a full caseload and still all these, just all these responsibilities. And I'm like, we'll call him Bob. I'm like, Bob, are you, are you sure you're okay? Like you're, you seem a little tense and stressed lately. Like, I really want you to take care of yourself. And he's like, no, but they're paying me so much. And like, you know, it's great experience. Like you get caught up in like the, you know, that like honeymoon phase, so to speak. And I'm like, it also sounds like a fast track to burnout. So I don't know. Yeah. You know, you really have to make that decision for yourself. And unfortunately, when you look at, it also kind of tailors like how you're going to treat, right? I mean, there are times where they have these incentives onto your, you know, either how many visits you're going to see or that. And this clinic has those incentives and I'm like screaming on the inside. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I would love PT to kind of switch to performance incentives, you know, instead of seeing them for 12 visits, oh, this person got better in eight, Mm -hmm. you know, that should be incentivized, saving the patient money, not making money for a larger company. And that is one of the greatest things that I could say about opening your own practice is, yes, of course, you want to, you know, make money, but people will always come back if you get them better faster. And Um, referrals. And and which is like, it's literally free marketing. And it's one of like the biggest pillars of marketing too. Yes. And that is, you know, another thing we don't learn in PT school is how to like put yourself out there and just talk to people and join networking groups. It's interesting. Like I'm about to turn 30 and I'm learning all this stuff that I probably should have learned in school at one point for the first time. Like how to do taxes. A, yeah. Well, the tax part, I actually, I'm pretty good at that, that part. Okay. You're the exception, but we don't want yes. to do taxes in school. Yes. But uh, you know, how to market and how to block your time and, you know, just the big things about running a business that PT school, I wish would, would pivot. I mean, I know chiropractics get a lot more, you know, marketing sales, all that kind of stuff. And uh, they are great lobbyists as well. Mm-hmm. And Did your PT program can... have any type of business class? It may have some been do, some like don't. a fleeting, you know, very small, like third year we did create a business program, but it, it wasn't all encompassing. It, I wouldn't say it necessarily prepared me for, for what I'm doing now. Yeah. And I would love there to be more of that in the, in the PT school, you know, cause it also gives, not that everyone should open their own practice, but it gives people a look into what that would be if that is something that they want to do. And right. I do think PT <clears throat> should move into more of a performance based, which the cash based program where someone gets reimbursed by insurance is, is very much that model. Yeah. I think that also kind of, I mean, obviously chiropractors, I feel like most of them own their own practice or are part of a group. Physicians are kind of the same way, obviously outside of hospital care. So I'm like, you know, you think of most healthcare providers are independent in the sense that they like open up their own place. Like they're not really joining like these huge corporations unless they join like a hospital mm-hmm. practice, but obviously then it's trickier because it ties in to more hospital care. But I feel like there's a big push behind like, oh, just go join this national chain versus like, go do it on your own. And they're, yeah, there and should, I think- it's more like 90, 10, and it should be at least be 50, 50. 
Yeah, I think we're in kind of another wave, you know, when most of like the PTs were coming out with, I guess, a master's, you know, they were all opening their own practice, but taking insurance because insurance paid well. So they all opened their practice, multiple practices, and then these bigger conglomerates started to get more pull with the insurance company. So if you didn't have two to three clinics, insurance was just saying, well, we're going to pay X. But when these bigger groups were saying, well, we won't use you or we won't be in your network, they were losing a lot more money. So Mm. those bigger conglomerates bought up those insurance-based practices. And now I think we're coming back into this wave where ETs are starting to, you know, feel their oats a little bit, especially with COVID. Everyone was kind of like, whoa, if you could lay me off so easily, do I really need you versus do you need me kind of thing? And I think we're going to see a big transition back to PTs, hopefully like opening their own practice and becoming independent. Like you kind of said it, it should be, or, or was mm-hmm. at one point in time. What's your take or, you know, how did you learn? Obviously with practice is one thing, but, you know, getting the behind the scenes of insurance and how they really dictate care myself obviously and a bunch of other people always talk about like negotiating and new grads getting fair pay but of course there's a ceiling limit to it because insurance just is insurance so like how do you kind of navigate especially as a new grad and you're no longer a student and you're like I wasn't taught any of this how the heck am I supposed to know yeah and and I think you know there's there's two sides for it Obviously, I want the starting salaries for all new grads to, to go up. And, and some of them that you know I've seen you post are, are way too low. But there's also this investment piece in the company that you decide to work for. People are so caught up with, okay, what's my salary? Where in reality, it needs to be, you know, everyone's got a mentorship program, but is it a true mentorship program? Or do you feel supported? Are they paying for your CEUs? Because I'll tell you, Pay inform yourself is very expensive. And some of the bigger companies do have really good tracks to, you know, getting your OCS or getting dry needling certified, which those courses can be thousands of dollars. So insurance, you know, when we look at a visit in a good reimbursement, you know, figure like your Blue Cross Blue Shield, we're probably making about a hundred to 110 on a good really well diversified treatment that's build well so for how many units like three to probably like probably five five if you're diversifying your treatment not just billing like 37 minutes of treatment you know which is while while billing shouldn't be illegitimate in any way and it shouldn't be done illegally understanding how to make the correct billing decision to make money will always increase your pull when you do have those conversations because you may be doing the exact same thing as the person right next to you, but if they're billing correctly or capturing all their time and they're showing that their visits reimburse $15 more than yours do, that company is going to say, oh, this is our top performer. They're either going to get that promotion. They're going to get a raise when they ask for it and it'll make a difference. I also it's so frustrating that it's like a game, like you have to know which lines to walk on. But then again, that's the boundary of working in insurance-based care. Yes, it's tough. And you don't want to get into this headspace that, you know, you're thinking, oh, I need to go do something else because it's 
a like neuro reimburses more than Therax or Therac, more, but you have to understand what the patient needs and how to progress them. Because in all reality, you know, Therax is a very simple thing. It's any exercise. They should probably be progressing into more functional stuff throughout their treatment anyway. So instead of leaving all of your things as a therapeutic exercise, transitioning to Therac, you're going to make more money just because you're doing the right thing and getting them back to squatting or running or any of that. So the billing is set up to get people back to function, which is what we as physical therapists really are meant to do. It's just understanding that. And unfortunately, it's a conversation that I think most new grads should have with their clinic directors because it will really separate them you know, down the road if they get good at understanding insurance. Right. But that's, I feel like that's also with like any job, you should kind of understand like the ins and outs of everything that you're doing. And we get, especially when you're in a high volume clinic and especially as a new grad, because you're already overwhelmed just simply being a new grad, it's very easy to find just like a routine and just stick to it because one, it's comfortable. And two, it's like putting that on the back burner because you're still trying to stay afloat with everything else. But I think it's a great point to make because yes, you're caught up in everything, but like that's also the time when you should be setting the tone for the rest of your career. So you don't want to have to like unlearn a really crappy routine. You want to kind of be like, okay, well, why am I doing this? What does it mean? And how can I, like you said, either maximize profits for the clinic or do better by my patients, like getting better, you know, discharge, sooner discharge or, you know, more visits or whatever it is. And I think, unfortunately, it's again, you're dealing with like that limitation of high volume clinic burnout, trying to make a decent living quality of life, but also trying to like keep my head afloat while learning all this other new stuff. Yeah. And I think for any new grad coming out, understanding what your onboarding is going to look like and setting that expectation when you sign that contract, look, you know, I want to be the best employee I can be, but I need the support and the time to get there. A lot of new grads will come out and they're rear in and ready to go just because you know they've been in school for now seven years and for me i had not made a dollar i was a you know, lifeguard during the summer and when when i got my first offer in that was 2017 it was for 75 and that was in new jersey and that was the most money that i'd ever seen on a piece right. of paper I and was you like, don't question is- it you're just like okay great like let me jump yeah, in yeah and then all of a sudden you know you hear of like an incentive bonus with uh, if you see X amount of people and you're like, I just want to see all the people then because I want to make as much money as I can right now. But we have our whole lives to make money and practice physical therapy. Like take that time right when you graduate to just learn Hold and learn everything you can. And start from the foundation and build. Yeah. You don't realize how it sets you off on a path. If you do, you know, one thing for low back, and you get so overwhelmed with the amount of people that you're seeing, that one thing for low back, whether it works or not, is going to be your one thing. So, you know, setting an expectation of an onboarding or just being like, look, I need to have check-ins every so often. If they value and want you there, they will make it work. Absolutely. And that's a good thing too. And like, I feel like because of social media and the way that I've seen this kind of since graduating in 2019, but I even kind of noticed it when social media in the PT community, I feel like started growing in like 2017, 2018. I feel like there's been this whole push on mentorship 
but no one has actually defined mentorship. Just like no one actually defines like an onboarding experience and what you should expect. And students go to these interviews and they're just like, oh, do you have mentorship? And the person's just like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, sure we do. And then the conversation just ends there and no one actually defines on either side. And then they go in and they have one day of training or maybe even just an hour. They're like, okay, bye, see ya. We'll wrap up your caseload by next week. And it's such a huge component because I, I mean, I personally, I'm curious what your opinion is, is on this. Like if I had to go back and I didn't love acute care and I ended up an outpatient, my take on this would be, I'd rather take almost a lower salary knowing that my training process and my mentorship process actually would be a little more hands-on or solidified versus going to somewhere like a higher salary, maybe even $10,000 higher. And then they just like chat with me maybe once a week for 30 minutes. Yeah, it's a tough decision to make because there's so much out there now, like you said, on social media that you could reach out to someone, you know, realistically and kind of create a mentor strike up a conversation and have someone to bounce ideas off of. I've never really personally had like a mentor. It was kind of, all right, here's my goals and here's what I want to do. But as I began to take students, there's a lot of value in having someone who's going to, you know, lead you kind of through the pathways and, and make those mistakes for you so that you could learn from them. But if someone was offering a true like mentorship, Like, you know, you're treating one whole day with this PT and understanding that, you know, you're not going to make money that day. So they're going to pay you less. I I think it's worthwhile, especially if it's a good therapist that, you know, you really learn a lot from. And sometimes they'll do this with like residencies. Mm -hmm. They'll offer a residency program. I personally never did one. Um, I sat for my OCS, I guess it was almost two years ago now. I never really saw the, the benefit of it. So I feel like residencies are kind of like someone's going to listen to this and they're going to be really angry with me. I know I already like feel it coming. It's my opinion. Don't shoot the messenger. But I personally think residencies are gimmicky. I'm not going to say they're gimmicks, but they're gimmicky because they kind of have this notion like, oh, like you're a resident, like you're going to learn so much, blah, blah, blah. Yes, I'm not going to say you don't learn anything. You learn a crap ton. And yes, you come out with a certification at the end of it. You're getting so much hands-on experience, whether it's clinical, didactic, whatever. But they're also creating this mindset that because of all of that, that justifies the lower salary. And then you're still starting out almost as low as every other new grad once you come out of residency. It's not like it's giving you a significantly higher salary when you come out on the other side. And I think that's what a lot of people are expecting. And that's why I think they're gimmicky. Yeah. You know, it may help you get hired, but I have not seen someone be like, oh, you have this credential, you know, here's that money. Right. Networking and and hiring process. Absolutely. Most likely can help. And and clinically it helped, you know, it was, it was refreshing, like all that information that you learn you know, really diving into the studies and fine tuning some things. And the company I was working for at the time paid for it. And that's where the benefit is. You know, I didn't do the residency, but it still got paid for. I offered, you know, you bring value to them when you can add another scale. But the residency for me, you know, it's just a test. I, I personally. You mean the, sound, the certification? 
yeah not the residency yeah, it, program yeah if you could pass a test you can get a couple more letters behind your name I and don't most think people I'm a, don't realize that you can do take the test without actually doing the residency yeah too. you just need two thousand hours of time working for either OCS. like for well for ocs i think ncs and all those so all it's 2000 hours all, okay it's just has to be within that realm so you know if you're not a neurotherapist and you want to go take ncs it might be much more difficult for scs i believe you need on field like almost like an emt certification so that you could be like an emergency responder so there's there are things but overall yeah they're all just a test that you take kind of like the boards were mm-hmm. you know whether or not you felt that you were a better therapist after you were passing the test, it, it's not really seen. You know, have I've worked with people who've got just alphabet soup behind their name. Some of them are brilliant, and I've worked with some really impressive therapists, but others just have a lot of letters behind their name, and they're you know still doing clamshells for three sets of ten. So, yep, um, the the company that you're working for doesn't give it so much thought. Because it doesn't I, increase I would, your reimbursement. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that <laughs> that's kind of where people get into this argument. And this one I do kind of disagree with is like new grads coming out and saying, my license bill's the same as your license. And while that's true, there, there are so many other, you know, factors that kind of build into that. I wouldn't use that argument as why you should be getting paid more as a, as a new grad therapist. The way that I've seen it framed that I know because I've used it too is a way to not get lowballed, not necessarily to get like an increase, if that makes sense. So it's more of like, I feel like the justification of like, hey, like this is a really crappy offer. Like, like my license bill is the same. You should be, you'd be able to pay me a little bit more versus like, hey, this is only 90,000 and I want a hundred. My license is still the same, you know? So it's like, it's, it's kind of like the when and why it's being used yeah and that's kind of where i would say the license may or may not bill the same because when we look at you know someone who doesn't understand the billing like we kind of talked about before your license realistically may only bill a hundred dollars where my license is now billing 115 so there's a pretty large pay disparity over like the 70 visits a week of 15 dollars that you gain with experience, which is definitely one of the reasons why if you are going into that outpatient setting, understanding and utilizing, you know, this argument, hey, I know that there's a lot that goes into what you can pay me first, you know, what I make on a visit. I want to look at maximizing that ethically and legally, but I would like some time in the beginning to understand, you know, how that works. One, it shows that you're interested in like being a part of the team being a good therapist, but it also shows them, okay, this person's going to be valuable. And I think that that would be a really good discussion to have when you're doing that interview or trying not to get low-balled. And if your offer is less than $65,000 a year, do not take it. There, There is someone else out there willing to pay you. Um, 70 because of inflation. <laughs> Yeah, well, seven, yeah, probably over the last year. Now, now it's seventy, but I, I know down here in the south, like I know it's you're going to see sixty-eight. Yeah. You're going to see sixty-eight all day. I know we've talked a little bit in DMs about that, and that's something that I still can't wrap my head around is the fact that there's geographical distance differences in insurance rates. Yeah, I don't understand it, but they're they're big companies, and you know, so it's like you can't really go out of state and get treated with your same insurance. 
right? So it, it it's all kind of wrapped into Tennessee versus New York versus wherever you're at. I mean, there's a reason that people out in Washington are making like $120,000 a year or yeah. Vegas, California, I think is like the highest. Or like Alaska. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then, you know, they also will use the uh, price of living, you know, right. where Nashville five years ago when I moved down here, the price of living was so much less than moving out of uh, New Jersey. It is not anymore where rents are now $2,000 for a one bedroom here. What? Um, but the average salary, which probably has gone up since I moved, was like fifty six thousand dollars Yeah, I'm sure it's still not far from that. So geographically, I mean, it makes a, a huge difference. But like you said, it shouldn't. But they'll use that. Oh, the price of living is not what it is up there. So we don't need to pay them. Who was I talking to? I was talking to someone and they said, you know, like one unit would be, just hypothetically speaking, like 20, 30 bucks. But in like another part of the country, it's 25 to $35. And I'm like, okay, in the grand scheme of things, it's only a little bit different. But I guess those few dollars add up. Because, I mean, that's per unit, right? So figure if you're seeing someone and you're building four units, that's $12 over a week. I mean, that could be thousands. So it's hard to say. I mean, I think the... Average therapists figure $100 even bills, if you see what, 12 a day, hard to say, like 60 units. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's $6,000 a day. My math was probably wrong on that, but. 7,200, yeah. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. And and that's a a decent amount of money. But then, you know, there's cost for the support staff you have and keeping the lights on and the building and you know, in those areas that rent is higher, all those costs are going to be higher too. So it's hard to say what their actual take home is and, and revenue profit is. I would love to know how like New York city clinics keep their doors open because God only knows what their rent is. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they're not paying. I mean, I know when I was coming out, like the offers that people were getting at some of the ortho places was, like 65. Mm, okay. And I, when I graduated, five, five it was all between ago. like 70, 75. But I'm yeah, just like, but still, when you have like 10 people on staff that plus like the rent and the cost of running a business, I, I don't know, it's just insane to me. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I imagine, you know, their profit per visit was much higher because to pay a therapist in New York City, like, you got to get a second yeah, job. New York, I, I, I New York pays reimburses like dirt. Does it? Yeah. See, I always thought it was more than uh, New Jersey or the surrounding states. I always I thought so be. too. And I forget who I was talking to. And then they were like, um, you know, New York is like actually kind of on the lower side. And I was like, I just assumed because wow. it costs more to live here that they wouldn't be as low as that. But yeah. yeah. And again, it just shows though how varying this whole territory is and navigating this space is like very challenging and hard to really wrap your head around yeah uh, that was something i kind of learned like when i did the travel you could go to different areas and make some of those contracts were astronomical like three thousand dollars a week and yeah. and you're thinking how can this person be paying me this i mean i know even on my last contract i'm, I'm doing the math but they were having trouble hiring someone 
And it's like, why don't you just pay the people you have more? But see, and, that's right. That's what I don't understand. And I just posted about that recently too. And, and someone has said, you know, asked about doing travel. And like, I was like, dude, go for it. Because now is like yeah. the time also, you know, the rates are astronomical. But what I don't understand is, Place A has staff therapists that are, I mean, this was what like the, the controversy with the nursing travel rates are. Yeah. You know, you're paying your staff, say for argument's sake, $80,000, but now this travel contract is coming in at $100,000, but they're seeing the same caseload and the same insurance yep. reimbursements. So where are you getting that extra money from? Yeah, I, I can't for life me understand why. But my guess is due to the change in reimbursement with PTAs, that 25% hit, they can't afford to hire a PTA to see, you know, no evals and a visit that's going to reimburse 25% less. They pay a premium to have a PTA in who can essentially keep the lights on mm. because if you can't see evals, you can't get new patients. Right. So, you know, some money is better than no money. And yeah. But then it just like leaves me questioning things like everything we just talked about for the past 20 minutes. And I'm like, are you yeah. sure you can't pay that new grad 75, 80 or like $10,000 more than you offered them? Cause I feel like there's some like secret money fund that like no one's talking about, but I mean like that yeah. was the same thing with hospitals. I mean, when I was in the thick of it in Manhattan, like every single hospital was on a hiring freeze yet they were hiring travel nurses there were nurses that were quitting and then coming back on travel contracts. Yeah, doing local contracts. Yeah, I imagine there is some sort of write-off. So they're not paying for any CEUs. They're not paying for any health care. Yeah. They're not paying, you know, any 401k reimbursement. So I wonder if these like agencies also pay them or like give them like a stipend or something. I don't know. I don't think they do. No. I think what the recruiting companies probably make is about 10% on each contract. If the person's making 2000, they're probably paying 2200. I don't think that they're paying to have the contract. I think they just need people and mm. that's kind of how it works, but there's definitely a lot of cost in not having insurance. Insurance is astronomical. I know each paycheck they're probably paying, you know, three, $400 just to insure their workers. Right. Um, so, so there, that's where the money comes from. I think along with you no know, reimbursement for like 401ks or HSAs, mm -hmm. it does free up a lot of money. People don't understand what a good insurance package is really worth. It's worth a lot of money. So this is true. <laughs> in, uh, when you're you know, 26 it, it, and no longer on, on your parents' health insurance, you realize just how important it is. Yeah. Yeah. That, that year hits, hits different for sure. You know, um, I had just moved out down to Nashville and but I was 25 and then that year came around and it, it slapped and I was like, what is this? Where did all this money go? And it's like, oh, you are paying for insurance now. And it wasn't even good insurance. I mean, I, right now I have like catastrophic insurance. I really have to make it worth, oh, no. worth my while <laughs> if I'm going to use it, you know, at least a couple of stays in the hospital yeah. um, to, to make it worth what I'm paying. All right. Any final thoughts? No, I think, you know, we've kind of gone over like the, the know your worth um, part of it, but also understand what the companies are looking for. It is unfortunately kind of a game uh, that when you go work for somebody, you have to play because not that you want to come out on top of it, but you want it to be a mutually beneficial work environment. And 
I think that that's just kind of the, the biggest takeaway. Find a place that is right for you, not one that somebody tells you is going to pay the most or is going to be good for them. I love it. Where can people find you if they have any questions or want to reach out and chat? You can either reach out to me at BN Weinstein DPT or enhance underscore PT and performance. Nice. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And you guys know where to find them if you have any questions. Thanks, Steph. Thank you for listening to this episode of the All Things Physical Therapy podcast. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe to stay updated on new episodes. You can find more episodes like these on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And to stay up to date, follow dpt.steph on Instagram or go to www.dptsteph.com.